Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Pinchas Eliyahu Blit. He is the author of the memoir, A Promise of Sweet Tea, published in Toronto by the Azraeli Foundation Holocaust Survivor Memoirs Program, 2021. Pinchas, it is my blessing to be in communication with you today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm honored personally. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life made you the person you would become as an adult? I was uh, born and raised the first uh, eight, nine years of my life in a godforsaken village called Kotelisi, without electricity, without indoor plumbing. Uh, and life was disrupted by the Germans. This population was murdered, and the wooden homes uh, burned to the ground. And the last after they killed the uh, gypsies and the, um, the the Jews on September 23, 1942, the Germans arrived and murdered the rest of the village. Uh, it was a good and pleasant place while Kotelisi was alive, surrounded by natural beauty and we uh, missed neither the electricity nor the indoor plumbing. We always drank fresh water from a well shell shared by neighbors. And we lit up the place by uh, using kindling wood and uh, kerosene lamps and candles. Kotulisi was located uh, in the Volina province, Volina region and uh, was n- not far from the uh, cobblestone highway that ran between Brest-Litovsk and, and Kovel, and was part of Poland, Western Ukraine, that's Western in the village and the province until September 1939 when Poland was attacked by the Germans and the Soviets at the time. Life in Kotelisi was primitive, but we didn't know better. It consisted of something like a more or less 3,000 inhabitants, some Jewish families, some wandering Roma. And during the Polish regime, there were some Polish administrators. There was no great love between the different communities, but we lived in peace and harmony together. My parents had many Christian friends and 
we use to visit their homes, including the home of the church deacon who lived next to my grandfather mayor's house. There were no more vicious murdering Cossacks or pogroms. We attended different churches and celebrated different holidays. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which was substantially larger and outnumbered by the Jews by the thousands, had a beautiful church and regular religious parades. The Jewish population of Kotelesi was probably around 125, 150 people, maybe 25, 30 families. And this was a Yiddish-speaking community, and they had everything that a religious Yiddish-speaking community would require. It had a synagogue, it had a cheder, it had... Uh, uh, a ritual bath, a mikveh, and it had the, also a, a rabbi, a rabbi, and uh, he was also the ritual slaughterer. And uh, at the, as for the Rama, they never stayed in one place for too long to have a discussion or to count the number of Rama, but they would come, pass by, they would uh, just pass by the village and go back to wherever they came from or go to another a new, another place. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I would like to see if there's, a, I, I have a, my message is, is similar to some people that wrote many books on, on the Holocaust and and the slaughter of the innocent. And, um, and unfortunately, uh, things like similar are still going on today. Uh, there are people, innocent people being killed and in many of the countries, and countries like Iran, countries like China, and um, there's a war going on now in Sudan, between, just between two generals. And uh, I would like to, my lesson would be that evil is not good. Evil is bad. People should live in harmony together, in, in peace and harmony. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Well, I reached a point in my age and there are very few people left that are alive from Kotelisi. There's only my brother and I. And, uh, and I thought I should tell the story. I think it's a story that maybe would show how evil is created, how evil is born. Uh, how evil is exercised, and I, I hope that by by reading my book, by understanding my story, people will learn a lesson to aim for peace and justice and, and friendship. Can you summarize your book for us? Well, there are three parts of the book. There's the 
before the 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 event and after the event. So before I described life in the village, uh, the three communities actually, and I'm, I'm I stress on the uh, on the Jewish Yiddish speaking community, which was uh, very small, of course, but still there there was life. There was uh, a community, a functioning community. Uh, and then I described the horrors that occurred during the war and the murder and the killing and the slaughter and the various pogroms. And, and uh, finally, I, the events that occurred after the war, uh, uh, life was finished as far as the village was concerned. There was nothing left for us. And we moved to Canada and a little bit about life in Canada and can you tell us about the social and physical geography of Cortilisi? Well, uh, again, the, the it was a, a village that was off the main highway that ran between Dresditovsk and Kovil. And it was really in the wilderness. It was right smack in the middle of the forest. The, the, the area was beautiful and uh, as it, it was a lovely place. It, it was at one street, there were no automobiles. There were just horses and buggies and we had our own horse and we had our own cow and uh, we had uh, our own, the produce from the cow that we used for our nourishment. And the, as far as social, there was, Life was celebrated, especially uh, in in the Jewish community. High holidays were observed very closely: Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and and Sukkot and Shavuot and Chanukah, and every event was uh, uh, was celebrated. We we had a pattern in life. There was a togetherness. There was uh, the. There was life was was beautiful. It was uh, very exceptional, something that will never happen again. What does your memoir teach us about Jewish Christian relations during the Holocaust? Can you elaborate on the relations between Christians and Jews in the Ukraine during the events that you document? Well, let me just tell you. I'm neither a scholar nor a historian, so I, I can't I, I can't really dwell on the. Uh, I'm not qualified to to comment on and elaborate on, on on the relations between Christians and Jews in Ukraine, but would say that my mem memory portrays Ukrainian Christians' behavior like any other uh, people. And what happened during the war is a catastrophe. I think Ukraine may have made a fatal mistake in believing that cooperating with, with Germany, they would get rid of the Soviets and become in, independent. They, they made a mistake and but there were some, of course, that 
did not follow this advice and, and fought against the German occupation. But on a more personal level, I can only, I think of some examples. For instance, I'll show you one example of you, Ukrainians behaving in a wonderful way, in a war, putting their own life in danger, the life of the, their own life and the life of their family to help, to help Jewish survivors. My father was bringing in the food. He would go out and find food for us but when we lived in the forest, distance away. And two young men caught my father, grabbed him, pulled him, and brought him to the mayor of the little village. The mayor was asleep. They woke him up. Here we brought you labor. That was my father's name in, in, in the Ukrainian. You take him to the Germans, and if there's a reward, I hope you share it with us. The, the mayor woke up. He, so here's, here's some young men who are ready to kill for money or for whatever. The mayor woke up. He looked at them. He says, what, what's going on? And they explained. They told him what they want. And he said, I am not a killer, he told them. You take Leba back where you found him. I'm not a killer. He put his own life on the line because Ukrainian families, Christian families were killed, murdered by the Germans because they helped out the Jews. Okay. Another example, at that time, our father was in Ratno. We didn't know what happened to him yet. It was the liquidation of Ratno. We didn't know what happened to him. And uh, my mother came to visit me with my brother. And there they are. I'm, I end up as a shepherd because Jewish parents were really lost. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to help their children. So some idea was that put them up with some Christian families. If you put them up with some Christian families, the parents should should die, the children would survive the, the war with those Christian families. And many Jewish parents gave their children to Christian families to work. My parents decided to do the same thing for me. And they they found this lady, a widow, in across the Pripyat in, in another village. And I was engaged Engaged. I was given to to work as a shepherd, and I worked for as a shepherd. But one day, my mother came to visit, and in the morning we got up, and they were shooting across the pipettes. Of course, we realized right away what was happening. Okay, we were wandering in the forest, we were looking around, and then there was this farmer. This farmer noticed us. It was getting cold outside, and he said to my mother, "You know, why don't you come?" and sleep at night in my stables, it's warmer. He offered this place, took a risk, a risk to, uh, to allow us to, to give us some place to live more comfortably. And we would stay in his stables during the night. And but he said, you leave early in the morning, and when we would leave in the morning, he would be there waiting for us, give us food. And then when 
he would give us food when we came back. And there was one man who, and there were others that have, but those children, by the way, that were given to farms, they didn't have a chance. I saw those children. They were alone. Their parents were now dead. When Ratna was liquidated, their parents were dead and they were alone. They didn't survive. They never had a chance. My mother at that time, she fought like a lioness. She worked so hard. She, she had no fear to save the, uh, us children. But um, yes, there were good people and bad people like any other people would behave. What were the relations between Jews and Roma where you lived? Oh, the, between Jews and Roma, there was there was hardly a relation. Uh, they were there, and they uh, they would pass by their beautiful wagons, all decorated, pulled by horses, and they uh, they stayed for a while and they left. They never stayed long enough to to give time to have a conversation. But at one point, my family moved to a hamlet called Hodin. And across uh, the, um, from our house, there was a, a compound of gypsies. They actually stayed there for a long time. They stayed there. And they would come into the house to visit. I remember one little boy, as I was in bed, uh, I, suffered, I had the measles. And he came over to, to my bed with his parents, but he came over to my bed and started choking me for some reason. I don't know what, why he did it, but his father came around and pulled him away. So they would come quite often to the house, but people would always create, it was a myth, I presume, uh, the story that the gypsies, as they were called at the time, are, um, are thieves. So whenever they would come into a house, people would watch them. But they 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 played instruments, they sang, they danced, and they they were a lively group of people. And but uh, I'll 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 never forget the time I saw when I, I was at my grandfather's house, and the police station was right across from my grandfather's house, and. Uh, all the gypsies, so the Rama, were, you know, they were brought in and in front of the police station. They were humiliated. They were beaten up. Some were shot, and then the rest of them were taken away and never saw them again. They were the first victims of German brutality. Can you tell us about the Ukrainian police as you remember them and experienced them? Can you tell us yeah. about their behavior? They were the worst bunch. They they were uneducated, ignorant slobs. They were not they were not trained to be policemen. I was beaten up by one, by two of them actually. I saw my parents being beaten up by this was the worst day of my life to see my parents being humiliated and being hurt. I was myself, I was walking on the street and I saw Two policemen uh, come walking from the opposite direction, and uh, I didn't want to confront them. And I ran into the yard of a neighbor, 
and they followed me. They grabbed me. They started hitting me. And I, I I don't know. I didn't even they didn't accuse me of anything. There was no reason why they did it, but they just beat me up for no reason. Those policemen, so-called policemen. My uh, my parents and my brother and we were coming from that Christian family, the Boyko family. They had a they had a farm not far from from Kotelisi, and we'd always go there and pick up vegetables and fruit. Uh, and we left the house and we, we walked along the dirt road and suddenly a, 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 some policemen appeared and they started beating my parents. My, um, my mother had a scarf till her dying day on her forehead. They were beaten up and it was, it was a horrible experience to see my parents being beaten up. Thank you for sharing. Can you tell me about your parents? How did they meet? What were their personalities like? My parents were, uh, they they were born and raised and lived in the same village. They, they, were, they were childhood sweethearts. Uh, my uh, my mother, uh, they lived in the same village and not too far from each other. Uh, both their respective parents, my, my mother's father and my father's father, they lived in the state for many years. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, he had a, uh, he, he was in, in, in the States, he lived in New York, worked in the sweatshop probably. The other one, my, my maternal grandfather, he lived in Pittsburgh and he made the railway spikes. And when he, when they came back, they started their own businesses, both. So they, they knew each other. They went to the same synagogue. The families knew each other. And uh, my mother, the way I remember my mother, she, uh, it's amazing how things uh, when she had to, have, when she felt that the responsibility is on her shoulders, she dealt with it very heroically. She managed it. She, when when this guy was threatening us with a gun, uh, not to follow them because we wanted to be with a group and they didn't want any children, uh, not to follow them. And my mother, she fought back. She told him, if you want to shoot someone, go and kill Germans. We, we have enough other people that, uh, that are ready to kill us. And she, and they, they took us in, my mother. And, but then when, when she was in the forest, she would get hysterical. She couldn't deal with crisis. Uh, she couldn't deal with situations that required calm and, and reason, logic. But my father was the exact opposite. He was the eternal optimist. He didn't 
he said that for him that there will be no 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 doubt in his mind that we will survive the war. But my mother, no, she she was telling him, take us, take us to the Germans. It's enough. I can't take it anymore. I I I can't live like this and. She was always crying about it, and my father always had a song, always a good word. In a sense, they complimented each other. So, but my my father was very heroic in his way and his thinking, and especially I don't know how he handled my mom, but with some love and uh, really affection. And he didn't raise his voice. He didn't scream when he, she was complaining so much. But she was she was a burden in a way because not very encouraging. To, but my father handled it very well. How did your parents differ in their parenting styles? Did one of them parent one way? Did, did they see things similarly in terms of parenting? Did they see things differently? Well, as I, as I said, uh, my mom was a screamer. She would scream and uh, I still feel her hand on my face. Her favorite smack was over, over the mouth. This is was the most favorite way of standing. My father, he was, I remember there was an incident where we had a, a, a tripod, a tripod that to warm up food and it worked on NAFTA. And somehow I managed, and my parents were away to open up this, um, the, uh, the cover of the uh, NAFTA and uh, it spilled it all over the floor and it reached the, so the little sack of uh, flour and it spoiled the flour. And my mother was screaming murder when she saw what happened. She was ready to tear me apart. <laughs> my father, he was calm. He was talking about Mel. No, it could have been worse, he said. It could have been worse. What could have been worse, you know? You could have left matches. You could have you just played with matches at the same time and burned the house down. And my father was calm about it. He started talking and then he said, you know, you did the wrong thing. I said, I knew I did the wrong thing. But, uh, uh, but my father wasn't ready to. He never used the straps, even though it was customary in those days and in Cotillis for anyone, anyone in Cotillis to discipline you, including the... Uh, the Rebbe and the, uh, and uh, even strangers, you know, you had to listen to strangers and follow them. Can you tell us about your grandfather, Meyer? What befell him? Meyer, Meyer was a wonderful Zayde. He was a wonderful, wonderful grandfather. But uh, Meyer, he, uh, he lived in the States for many, many years. Uh, he was he was away and um, uh, and uh, I used to spend a lot of time with Mayer. Uh, every Friday he would take me to the mikveh, I remember. 
on Saturday, I would always be there and uh, he would teach me the uh, Hebrew and the the Chumash, the, uh, you know. But um, during the Soviet Union, when officially the Cheda was closed, mayor conducted a clandestine Cheda. He was had a few little, few boys, small boys, and he would meet there, and, and I was his grandson, and I remember coins would fly from the heaven when I, if I would answer the question properly. But he was away a great deal. And he spent many years in, in the United States. And uh, my grandmother, who played there, who had a married sister in New York, was pleading with him, bring us, bring us to America, bring us to America. And um, he, he refused. She went to see, my grandfather Mayer was a follower of the Triska uh, Rebbe, was a miracle working Rebbe. She went to see him and uh, she told him about the difficulty she has in life with her husband away, and and um, he, the Rebbe, decided to write a letter to my grandfather, Mayor, ordering him to bring the family to America. Uh, and uh, he wrote back to my grandmother, Freda, telling her that um, uh, myself, I'm coming home. But he came home only at the end of World War I. And he started a, a little business, uh, some equipment that would clean the uh, wool of impurities. It was worked, handled manually. And uh, uh, and farmers would bring their wool to my grandfather's place in his little house that he had uh, across the police station next to the church. And uh, and they would uh, make their living this way. Um, but it was uh, Grandmother Freda. She was the one that was running the, uh, the business. She was very, very friendly, really capable lady. And she would, uh, remember the customers would complain if she wouldn't recognize them. She would, uh, I remember her saying, uh, well, I wouldn't recognize them. And they would complain, we recognize you. She would answer, well, I'm only one and you're so many. I can remember you all, you know, but, uh, Mayor was a wonderful lady. He was, I'll never forget the time under the Soviet when I started school and I became a pioneer with the red kerchief wearing on my neck. And I walked into his room wearing that kerchief and he, I could see tears in his eyes. And, uh, but he, the children would report on their parents. So you had to be very careful, especially it took a risk because, I mean, I was a kid. I didn't understand it. I didn't 
I didn't understand the difference between the uh, uh, the um, uh, the sayings of our father and the and uh, the Soviet Constitution. And I was wearing the uh, the talus cotton or the Leipzig, the prayer under the shirt. I was because this was a custom. We didn't wear it over the shirt, and I was wearing the 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 red kerchief at the same time. I was wearing the red kerchief, dancing with the Torahs and Postora. I didn't know. I, 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 they weren't telling the same stories, but uh, uh, but uh, I didn't see any. To my mind, I didn't see any friction between the two. Can you tell us about your grandmother, Freda? What uh, befell Freda? Freda, she was a healer and a very competent feltra. Uh, uh, she was. Uh, oh, uh, she 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 would deliver babies. And she would heal people. She, um, on the religious holidays, she would uh, she would wear wear to synagogue a the hairdo, uh, you know. And uh, and she was a very competent midwife. And she, as I said before, she ran the business that my grandfather started. And. She survived the, the liquidation of Ratna. She managed to escape and survive. But she died of typhoid fever on September 14, 1943, exactly one year after Isaiah the mayor died. A year after the death of uh, Zayda Mayer in, in, in Ratna, almost to the day, on Tuesday, September 14, 1943, my grandmother Freda died of type of fever. She had stayed with us in the forest from the very beginning, but at one point decided to leave us and the forest. She stayed with various friendly Christian families while helping the sick who, who had been plagued with typhoid fever, which she eventually contracted. One day, my parents decided to go find her and bring her back to live with us in the forest. On the way, we encountered a farmer who told us that about her death. She had been taken outside, placed, leaning against the stable walls to die a horrible death all alone without food or water. The thought of this always brings tears to my eyes because she had always been there to help others, even strangers, Jew, or Gentile. It is hard to imagine how much she suffered all alone before relief came with her death. When father heard the sad news about his mother's death in clear defiance of the rule that Kaddish is to be said 
with a minion of 10 men, he walked over to the tree, pressed his forehead hard against the trunk and tearfully in a loud voice recited the Kaddish after his mom. Can you tell us about your other grandparents, Berchik and Frume? What were their dispositions like? Yeah. Well, now you say the Berchik and Boba Frume lived uh, on the same street as my other grandparents. They had a big house with many rooms. And as I said before, Berchik also lived in America, in Pittsburgh, and he made the railway spikes. He started a smithy uh, in Cotillisi, but he had no patience for me. But I had a excellent relations with Bobby Fulmer. I still remember um, a very innocent thing. I mean, it's something that happens again and again, but I remember it so clearly. When I was a little boy, I was walking around the house and I was my shirt was out, completely the shelf. She put me on top of the table and she tucked in my shirt, she tucked my pants, my shorts, and it was a very, I had a very warm feeling when she did it. And they both died on a Saturday night. And uh, at home, they died together, Isaiah the Bear Chicken, my Baba Fulme. I can still picture the scene that would have unfolded in my grandparents' home that Shabbos when their life ended. The sun was setting, and as was customary, everything was being done to slow down the departure of the Sabbath. Slowly, meticulously, and with great leisure, as if holding back the departure of a dear guest, a dear friend. My grandmother, grandmother Frume would have looked at the dark sky for at least three stars. When she found them, she would announce it's already time. She would then brush her hands against the moist glass window pane and walk in the dark to a chair in the corner, sit down and begin reciting the Yiddish prayer of God von Avon, as was the custom of women to recite before Havdole, to pray for a good, healthy, and prosperous week. She would say the prayer very slowly, just to impede the departure of the Sabbath, counting every word in that wonderful ancient tune, begging the Almighty, practically in tears, God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, protect your beloved people, Israel.
from all evils as the beloved holy Sabbath takes leave, that the coming week fate arrive to bring perfect faith, love of good friends. She would then recite even more slowly and with supplication and tears the final passage may this week arrive for mercy, for good health, for good fortune, for success, for blessing, for kindness, for children, life and sustenance with the help of heaven for us and for all Israel. And let us say, Amen. The Sabbath would then be over, and Bobby would light a candle and move to the dining room table, where Zeta Berchik was standing, as he always did every Saturday night after Bobby Fulmer recited Godfun Avom, preparing to make Abdullah, setting out the spices, braided candles, wine, the Abdullah cup, and matches. Say the Berchik would fill the wine cup holding and lit candle high with my tall, beautiful, graceful, statuesque, and most generous grandmother, whom is standing by, listening to Zaydi pronounce boldly and loudly the words of the Abdullah. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the springs of salvation. Then after the blessing over the wine, he would drink from the cup and pass it to Bob Fullman, followed by this smelling of the spices and recover from the weakened state created by the departure of the Neshama Yaseya, the additional Sabbath soul, which leaves the body with the departure of the Sabbath. After Abdullah, my grandmother would have left the house and gone into the garden to pick vegetables for supper. And this is when vicious killers broke into the house and shot my grandfather dead. My grandfather, my grandmother, instead of saving herself, left the garden and walked into the house, confronting the killers, and was also murdered. Thank you for sharing. Can you tell us about your uncles, Shmilke and Benzion? What happened to them? Yeah, Shmilke and Benzion. Uh, first, uh, uh, Shmilke was my, my father's younger brother, and Benzion was my mother's young, younger brother. Uh, they were wonderful, wonderful uncles. They, they were... I was close to them. Uh, Schmilke, 
under the Soviets, became a manager of a uh, supply store for farm implements and farm equipment and produce and grains and stuff. Then Sian was a teacher, uh, school teacher. And uh, they both uh, were still single, though they, they had lots of friends because there were men and women, young men, young women in the same village and they knew each other. And they, they married each other, you know. Uh, and uh, when we, we left Gochilisi, because Potlisi was destroyed, uh, there were very few Jews uh, that survived, um, went to Ratno, including Shmilke and Benzian, uh, went to Ratna. And uh, during the liquidation of Ratna, they were they were murdered. They were both murdered during the liquidation of Britain. What happened to your uncle Yerachmiel? Can you elaborate? Yerachmiel, yes. Yerachmiel was my uh, my mother's uh, brother. He was older than uh, than Bensi, and he was uh, my mother was some place in between. Yerachmiel was the oldest. Yachmiel, he was drafted in the Polish army. He served in the Polish army. And uh, during the, the 1939, when Poland was attacked, he, he went to war. He was involved in, in, the, in the war. And uh, he, uh, he survived. He, he came home after at the end of, of the war in 1939. And when he came back as a soldier, he was still wearing the Polish uniform, even though Kotlisi by then was occupied by the Soviets. But he was wearing his Polish uniform. And uh, then when the Germans came in 1941, the Jews had to supply certain things, they had to, to supply clothing, uh, uh, foods, uh, uh, labor. So the Kotlisi was ordered to supply a certain number of people to work. And he was, uh, he, he, will, he couldn't force anyone to do it. The, the Jewish community they had no way of forcing, telling someone you will go. So they looked for volunteers. So Yachmiel and three or four other young men from Kotlisi volunteered. To, uh, to be a part of a working force of the, for, for the Germans. And they were sent to Kovel, uh, Kovel. And when Kovel was liquidated by the Germans, unfortunately, my uncle was caught in the mid there and he was, he was murdered. He was the first victim of uh, the Cortelisi Jews. Because then all the others were killed later on, but Yerachmiel was the my uncle. He was the first victim of German atrocities. Who is Laser? Can you tell us about him? Laser is my younger brother, and 
we both uh, he, he himself he, he wrote a, a book on even though we went through the same experience we went through the same war we went through the same forest uh, our books are a bit different well they're not quite the same as if we tell different stories but that's I don't know how it came out but that's the way it, it, it is so is my brother, and when we came to Canada, he he had he had it easy really because uh, for him he was still young enough, he was able to go to Talmud Torah, and go to learn the English very fast, picked up the English, um, but we had to leave the Talmud Torah because my parents had no money to pay for the schooling and the. He went to Strathcona, that's a, uh, a school uh, in Montreal, a high school. He went to high school, he finished high school, officially graduated from high school. He got married very young. He got married in 1984. Uh, uh, and uh, his, his uh, wife was a Montreal girl, Zahava Malice. And they, they, right after their marriage, they uh, they spent their honeymoon in Montreal, and they moved to Israel. And they moved to a kibbutz called Uvim uh, in the Negev, and he's been there ever since, and he still lives on the kibbutz, though his wife she passed on a few years ago. Uh, they have two boys. Uh, one moved out of the kibbutz, lives outside Tel Aviv. The other one got married to a, a, the kibbutz girl, and he moved into his wife's kibbutz. And Blazer is there, and unfortunately, he doesn't feel so good lately. I spoke to him, actually, this morning. I spoke. I speak to him every Friday, um, you know, on the phone. So he's not feeling so good. I hope he's okay. Who was Rabbi Romanowski? Can you tell us about him? Shmel, Shmel Romanowski. Shmel Romanowski was, uh, he came from a big city in Poland and he was the rabbi of the village and he was um, married. He has one daughter, His, her name was Itke. And Shmel Romanowski was a wonderful man. He was, uh, <laughs> He, he, he helped the community, he even helped to raise money for the everyone. There weren't too many rich people. There was one rich man in Cotillas, his name was Tulia, and he, all, he had the monopoly on liquor. Imagine having the monopoly on liquor in a, in a village and in the surrounding area. So he, he supported the community. It was thanks to his uh, generosity that the, the, the community was able to uh, have a synagogue and to hire uh, a, a rabbi on a permanent basis in, uh, uh, for the village. And uh, I remember him so well. And uh, he, he would, as uh, a uh, custom, he would visit the um, the Jewish homes on Sitnoch, like Hanukkah, he would visit every Jewish home and he would taste the latkes that was 
baked by every Jewish uh, housewife. And uh, on Simchas uh, Teure, of course, there's, there's Kreplach. Uh, so you would also visit every home. Uh, and every holiday, he would, he would visit the Jewish homes and taste the, the, the food. Imagine going around to, there were probably about, I don't know, 30, 25 Jewish homes. It was quite a, a task to do. And, uh, but he was, um, and uh, he, he, he once caught, caught me in a lie and, uh, um, and he was very nice about it. He didn't, he didn't hit me. He didn't, but he told me, he accused me that because I lied and because I didn't say a certain prayer on the Sabbath, I was impeding the arrival of the Messiah. I felt terribly guilty. And he said, yeah, I, I deserve a punishment, but it's Shabbos, it was Shabbos, and he couldn't punish me because if he smacks me over the face, my face will turn, uh, will turn uh, red, and it would be like painting on the Shabbos, and this is not allowed. But you're you're a liar, and you you and by lying, that and he, not saying the the prayer of Bochenafshi, a certain psalm that's that's recited during certain periods of the year, and because if you you, you haven't done so. Uh, you, you, you ask me, you know that if Jews would observe one Sabbath completely, with all the mitzvahs, the Messiah would come. And by me doing what I, I not having recited the prayer, I, I, I have impeded the arrival of the Messiah. I felt very guilty. And of course, I felt even worse when, I, when he was murdered. When he was murdered, I felt bad about it, that I'll never be punished again. I'll never be punished for that particular sin that I have committed. It was no longer here. Who was Devoira? What can you tell us about her? And what can you tell us about what befell her? Devoira was a healer. Devoira, Devoira the altar. She was a healer, and she was specializing in, in healing of children. And after a visit, she would always have candy, and people... Children would love to get sick because they know when Dwera will come to heal them, they will get candy. Of course, she was a religious person, complete and firm belief in, in a world to come, in a better world, and the appearance before the Almighty. And for that purpose, she bought yeah. shrouds, and she bought the very expensive shrouds and was the talk of the village. And those shrouds, on those shrouds, she spent more money on the shrouds than she spent on all the clothing she was wearing. It was usually black, black clothes, black outfit. And uh, but uh, I myself had an experience with her, and, and I was—I once developed a rash on my face. And Tuere came to the house, and she pulled out kindling wood, 
from her bag. She had, she had a bag with all the potions and stuff that she used. And she lit the kindling wood in both hands of the, both hands, and she twirled it around my face. She mumbled some words. I don't know, I didn't understand what they were. And she, she spat into my face several times as she twirled the kindles until they were all completely burned. And, uh, and it healed, but it took a long time. It took a while for it. But at the end of all this, she gave me candy. And this was something that in Cortelisi, you, you, you children would not get too often. And on July 29th, 1942, Vore was murdered. But her her shrouds were stolen before by some people that came into the house and robbed the house and took away her precious shrouds. And she was buried without her shrouds in an unmarked grave with the other murdered victims. I hope the Almighty received Dwayra's bullet-riddled body in her modest and torn street clothing, accepted her spirit, and recognized her good and generous soul, even without proper shrouds. She had spent more money, time, and effort on her shrouds and preparations for the world to come than she had on this world, her worldly clothing and worldly needs. And she had loved her young patients and always wanted to make them happy, sharing the very little she had. Hopefully the Almighty understood that she had done everything in her power to make a dignified entrance and not to be the embarrassment when appearing before him. That was where the altar. What was Shabbat like before the Holocaust for you and your family? What was it like during the Holocaust? Well, Shabbat was always a special day, a really, truly a day of rest, study, and synagogue. We always had special foods on Shabbat. The only time that, as far as the Kotelisi Jew was concerned, that he lived like a prince. I think there's a poem by Andrei Heine about the, uh, the Jew, the, uh, the word that pulls, that works hard during the week and turns to a, a prince on the Shabbat. And, um, and the Shabbat was observed. We, we were, we were, um, we still went to the synagogue for about, even though when the Germans arrived, we didn't see Germans for a long time. And was the Ukrainian police that dealt with us. They were the ones that uh, 
kept on robbing our homes, taking away our things and and beating us up. And uh, so we still, uh, we still, notwithstanding uh, all the evil around us, we were still observing the Shabbat. We were, we, were, we, we had the synagogue and uh, we went to the synagogue. We, we would keep um, uh, the children in, in inside the uh, we wouldn't play outside we were afraid to play outside but the synagogue was there the mikra was there uh, the cheder was, was there the cheder we went to cheder remember but there was no more during the holocaust there was no more no more school but uh during the uh, before the war, Shabbat was a wonderful, wonderful day for for for, for the Jewish population in Portalisi. But I, I remember that the first half of nineteen forty-two, we. Even though there were, it was already uh, under German occupation, we, we didn't see any Germans. It was mostly done, and yet no Jew had been killed in Kotelisi. We still lived in our homes and even attended synagogue and celebrated our holidays. During the high holidays of 1941, every Jew attended synagogue and everyone did a great deal of praying and crying. The old cantor, it was a cantor from Ratna, cousin Velvul, cantor Velvul, especially hired for the high holidays, was conducting the services as he had done every previous year. Nothing changed in the synagogue, except that there was more than the usual crying and hugging, especially of children who this year were not allowed to go outside and play and who were permitted on Yom Kippur to eat their cold chicken and cakes and and cookies inside the synagogue in the presence of the fasting adults. The entire Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services sounded like a, a video, a, a deathbed confession as if everyone was expecting to die. We prayed for atonement, for forgiveness, for our supposed sins, and offered a, a plea for life to survive the bitter humiliations and, and the war. How did you celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur during the Holocaust? Well, we, 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 we celebrated it, but we, in fear, we were not, we were not a very happy lot. We, 
We were, as I mentioned before, the Germans, the, the killing didn't start until about the middle of 1942. So the Germans came 41 to 42. Uh, and then, uh, uh, but the, the Ukrainians were doing a good job. Uh, the Ukrainian police were, were doing a good job of oppressing people. Uh, but we still went to the synagogue. And then we had to run. We were on the run, so there was no... Those who survived, we lived in the forest. There was no synagogue. How did you celebrate other Jew Jewish holidays during the Holocaust? In the, in the same fashion, we didn't celebrate very much. We, we just... We were, we were still Jews, and we practiced our Judaism. We... Uh, we couldn't hide the fact that we were Jewish. We were so much, we looked different, we behaved differently from the uh, Ukrainian Christian population or the gypsies. Uh, but um, we, those were religious people, people that believed in, a, in, a, in an almighty who was there to listen, but I guess he wasn't listening for good. What does your memoir teach us about Stalin? Well, I started school in 1939 when the Soviets came to us. I was a very happy child. I remember for the first day walking to school early in the morning, the moon was still out there in the sky and I could see it. I came to school and I loved school. Not only this, well, what happened, I, I sort of became the property of the government. And I was told that Stalin was our leader. Stalin was our father. Stalin was the provider. And we worshipped Stalin. We sang songs about Stalin. I still remember some of those tunes and words, some of the words that we sang about Stalin. Stalin is our bright sun. And I remember the, the, the song finished with a line. He took Ella, which supposedly his daughter, into his arm. And he remembered all his children. He remembered all his children. And um, all the children he remembered, including me. And I was so enamored with Stalin. I love Stalin. <laughs> You know, well, of course, Stalin was a killer, and we didn't know about it as children. We, we didn't know what was going on. It's, it's amazing the influence he had, the, the control he had. Uh, a man by the name of Lozovsky, Lozovsky was a comrade in arms with Lenin and Stalin in 1904. And Lozovsky was one of the unfortunate Yiddish Jewish uh, uh, writers and poet, poets, novelists uh, that were tried and executed during Stalin. Uh, Lozovsky was pleading with his prosecutor, let me write a letter to Stalin. He knows I'm not a traitor. He knows I'm a patriot. I'm a Bolshevik. I'm a I'm a, a devoted comrade. Well, Lozovsky was not 74 at the time, and he didn't realize that it was 
Stalin will not help him. It was Stalin that sent him to uh, to um, to the uh, to death. He was the one that tried him and picked him. So people were mesmerized by him, not knowing that he was what he was doing. He was he was getting rid of the leadership by removing the head. The the rest of the court dies, and that's it. And this is what Stalin was doing. But I I guess I didn't know better. I, it, never mind me. I was a kid. I didn't know much. Uh, I believed everything because Stalin, the school was a beautiful place for me. And I, I learned so many things that I was excited about school. I was a good student in kindergarten and grade one and two. But, you know, a strange thing happened. And, I remember the day when I found out that Stalin died. Stalin died, and involuntary tears came down my eyes. Now, I certainly was, was not sad about Stalin's death. Uh, and I was wondering, why, why did the tears come down? Mm. When I came to think about it, I must tell you that during, those were the the real childhood days that I had on, the time that I went to Soviet school, was after the war, I missed everything. And not, things were not normal for many years until 1948. So during those two, two and a half years that I went to Soviet school, they were wonderful, wonderful years, childhood years, yeah. How did you handle the news of Stalin's death in 1953? Well, I, I, I just, I handled it. There was nothing to handle. I, I was, I, I, not the question of being happy. I, I, I remember Stalin for what he was. He, he was a killer. He was a killer, plain simple. That's how I remembered him. I wasn't sad of it. Some of the people at that time I knew that they felt betrayed. They felt uh, uh, they they felt that uh, very much they were very sad about Stalin's death. I remember one of the people. He was with his wife. He was a Jew originally from Poland, who escaped to Russia when the war broke out and he was there, he found this, uh, met this Russian uh, Jewish lady and married her and they came to Canada. And here they are, they are subtenants of my parents. We live on the Rocher, uh, 5983, and uh, uh, we have an extra room and we sublet this. They lived, they had one little girl, you know, and he was, uh, he, he was, uh, a supporter of Stalin. He loved Stalin. And I would yell at this guy, he's a killer, he's a bad man. He, he's awful. He, he tries to destroy the Jewish people by first killing the leadership and then the, the no, you, but, and his wife, who was born in the Soviet Union, she supported me. <laughs> she, she was telling him he's crazy in, in, in believing in Stalin. But he is a man that was born in Poland, but was saved in the running away 
escaped to the Soviet Union, survived the war there, and he fortunate Stalin. He loved Stalin. I, I didn't. I didn't. As a child, yes, I did. He was, I was very proud wearing the uh, red kerchief. I was an important person. I was very, very proud of it. In the memoir, you often allude to Nahum Ish Gamzu. For our listeners who might not be familiar, who is he in Jewish tradition? Why do you call him to mind? What did he mean to you during the ordeals that you lived through? Nahum Gamzu. Well, the reason for Nahum Gamzu uh, is Nahum uh, Gamzu is described in the Talmud as having the tendency to react to misfortunes with total and unyielding optimism in each case of uh, misfortune or tragedy, uttering the phrase that became famously attached to him, Gamzu, Gamzu Litova, Gamzu Litova. Now, Gamzu, meaning this too is for the good. The two words, Gam, Zu, Gam meaning this too, Gam, Hebrew words, Zu, this too. Uh, because, so he was referred to as the Gamzu man, because, but no matter what, he would always say, this too is for the good. Some other description referred to him as being Ish Gamzu, or as the man from Gimzo. Gimzo was, at that time, a town called Gimzo. Besides all this, he was a, a Talmudist, and the teacher, he was the teacher of the great Rabbi Akiva. So he's a very prominent Tande, or a writer, or scribe, or of the of the Talmud, but that's not he, he was not an inspiration during the uh, during the war. Well, we lived in the forest. When writing my story, I thought of my my father was a kind of Finnish Gamzu, because he always looked at the bright side. He always thought this too is for the good. Could have been worse. So this too is for the good. So he wasn't inspiring to, to help us to survive the war in any way, but I never heard about Yishgamsu when I was a kid back at 10 years old. I only learned about him later in life when I was studying at the seminar for to become a teacher. But when I thought about my dad, it reminded me of Yishgamsu eternal optimist, and my father was the eternal optimist. Can you describe the course of events which transpired in the mass killings in Ratna? Well, as I mentioned before, we, we I, I was born and raised in Cortilisi, and at one point uh, it was... Uh, Cortilisi was not a place for, for Jews to continue living. 
and those were so after so many Germans came several times and each time they managed to kill a number of Jews and I have the dates because my father marked down the dates on a piece of paper, actually marked down the Hebrew dates on a piece of the, the paper who, when everyone died. Um, uh, so um, there was, um, I don't know if it was a decision made by sitting down at a lunch or dinner and make a decision somehow those who, Jews who, who survived the, the massacres in Kotlisi decided to move to Ratna. Uh, Ratna was still a, um, a place where Jews could uh, live. And uh, the only time that when the first day when the Germans arrived, they uh, assembled all the Jews in Ratna and they picked out 30 or 32 young men and they added to those 32 the same number of Russian prisoners, and they shot them, killed them all. And I would, after this, uh, the, the Ratna jury still continued to live normally. So we decided to move to Ratna. We left go to this in the middle of the night, and we took off. We left our cow in the in the stables. We gave her a last meal and we left her there. And uh, we came to Ratno and we lived in Ratno. And in Ratno, uh, we, did, we had no work. My father didn't work, so there was some charity and we, we were given a place uh, uh, to sleep. And uh, we stayed in, we stayed there. But the parents, as I mentioned before, were planning to, to save their children, to do something that they could do, for, you know. But so they decided on this idea of, of providing, um, providing uh, to farmers that wanted help. And some kids my age, I was at Taiwan, uh, 9, 10 years old, and I was given to this uh, farm, a widow, to, as a shepherd. So I ended up, after arriving to Ratna, I ended up in a, in a village, neighboring village, and worked as a shepherd. I would, every morning, I would get up with the, with the animals at five o'clock, take care of them, and take them to the, um, to the fields. And I would be in the field the whole day, and my diet would be some boiled, pota boiled potatoes, hard boiled eggs, and, and milk. That was basically my diet. One day, uh, one day, I get the um, my mother and my brother came to visit, and they came to visit, and uh, there we we slept in the in the stables as we always did, as I always did when I was alone. And in the morning, we uh, across the river Pripyat, there was lots of shooting. Well, imagine what it was. My father stayed behind, and my mother came, and and this was a hard time. We had well, we lost our father, and my mother had to deal with two kids, and it was it was very difficult. We lived in, in the forest, and at this time, the Germans came to Laratno, and they, they killed everyone in Laratno. My father was lined up to be shot, 
with uh, three other Jewish men, including Tulia from Kotilis, who also came to Ratna, to, also came from Ratna, uh, also came to Ratna, uh, to Ratna to stay. And uh, my father was, uh, he, he, you know, he took sometimes those things to extreme. He, he was, a, he was a joker, and you know, there he, he stands in front of people pointing rifles at him, and he's still making jokes. So he tells those guys, he says, "Why, why do you want to kill us here on the street?" Where well, then you'll have to drag us for burials way out there in the sticks. You know, we'll walk, we'll walk like brothers, like friends. You know, I know you're doing your job, but we will be with you, we'll walk, you know, uh, with you, uh, you know. Well, those those guys, the, those Ukrainian police, they 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 were experienced killers. They were not interested in anecdotes and stories, and they shot Tudor next to my dad. And Tudor fell dead with a yelp. And when his father saw that, he realized that it's no time for talk, and he started running. He starts running, and they, they started shooting after him. And he remembered the farmer telling the story about World War One when they uh, were shooting after uh, uh, they were shooting after this farmer, the Germans at that time. Wonder, I guess they were also shooting people. And he was running zigzag. So my father started running zigzag. and uh, But they were shooting after my father with machine guns. So <laughs> zigzag doesn't help. Anyways, he runs into the, uh, the Pripyat up to his neck in water. And like every cotillacy juice, uh, my father didn't know how to swim either. So he didn't know how to swim. And he's there, he's standing in the middle of the river. And he has a hard time to make a decision. He's very ambivalent about it. About going back, he'll be killed by the Germans. If he... And he was there, he stands there. To make a long story short, a farmer on a little boat was passing by. And, and he took him across to the other side. And he was saved. And after we found out that our father escaped from someone who saw him, saw him after after the massacres in in Ratno, and we started looking for him. He was looking for us. We were looking for him. And eventually, found our father after about two months or so of searching, and we got together again. And that was Ratna. Thank you for sharing. Can you tell us about life in Montreal after you came to Canada? What were some positive and negative aspects of life in Montreal? It was wonderful. <laughs> Especially my mom was very excited to go to the grocery store. And she was able to find all the food that... Uh, uh, all, uh, all the food that uh, she wanted, and she would cook and bake and busy. But we, we had no job, we had no work. My brother, of course, was okay. He started going back to school as if nothing happened. 
and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, but finally, I decided, and I had a hard time to um, to convince them to accept me. But they did accept me to the teacher seminar, and uh, but life was good. Life was friendly. We had. We had some relatives who took care of us, and and we had all the food we wanted to eat. All the food, and, and uh, I I became a member of the Jewish Public Library. I would go there all the time, and I was a teacher. I went to after I taught school at the Solomon Schechter, and then um, I decided to. Uh, to something else, and I decided to go back to school seriously. And I got my BA from Concordia, and then I, I went to McGill, and I got my BCL, and I became a lawyer. And I practiced law for a little over 50 years. What was your experience like studying at McGill Law School? It was... Uh, it was challenging. It was, I, you know, it's, uh, I had my BA, but I think I've missed high school education. You learn certain things in high school that you apply later on in life. I missed high school. I never went to high school. I finished two, two and a half grades of Russian Soviet uh, public school. And we had a class of, at law school, we started a class of 82. And uh, first year out of the 82, only 32 passed. We had some very bright students in, in my law school class. So, and uh, I had to compete with some of the best, unfortunately. And I had a hard time dealing with it. It was bothering me a great deal. Many of the graduates from from my class of '58, uh, they they became judges, became politicians, some cabinet ministers, some very prominent people. So the, the competition was tough, but I managed. I did work hard, and I passed. I did it. What does the title of your book mean? Why did you select it? Well. The, I was telling the stories uh, to Giselle. I was telling her quite often. I think I probably bored her with all the stories. I repeat myself a great deal. <laughs> so she listened to my stories. And I told her the story about my dad. My dad, I, one of my uh, the things, I, my most favorite beverage was was sweet tea to room temperature. I would wake up in the middle of the night and want to drink tea. Well, my parents would prepare next to my bed a glass of, of tea. So I, when I wake up, I have tea right there and it was my favorite, my most favorite beverage. I loved sweet tea. And my dad promised me, my dad promised me that 
He didn't question whether we will survive the war. He knew we were going to survive the war. He knew it. He felt it. He always kept on saying, when we survive, when, we, when, we, when the war finished. And he said, when the war finished, and we'll go to America, and you will have all the sweet tea you want to drink. All the sweet tea you want to drink. And Giselle suggested that's a good title for the book. A Promise of Sweet Tea. How did you meet Giselle? How I met Giselle. The first time Giselle came across my office desk in divorce proceedings when I represented her husband. That was the first time. Then I met Giselle when I was in the theater, when I was in the theater and she was in the theater and she was working. But I met her before that. And, um, but then we, we started seeing each other more often in the theater. The Yiddish theater, Dora Wasserman theater, she was one of the performers and so was I. And before you know it, we decided to get together. And we've been for together over 30 years. 35 years. We've been together 35 years. Yeah, over, over 30 that's, years. <laughs> that's remarkable. Yeah, over, over, over yeah, 35 years, that's what Giselle was just prompting me. When is your anniversary? It was March. March. How did you celebrate? We didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we celebrate every day. Yeah, Giselle is wonderful. She, yeah, no, the, the worst thing could happen, and you know, we laugh about it. We, she's a barrel of laughs. She, everything she turns into a joke, and that's what happens, you know, and she's. She's a great entertainer and a great storyteller, and I love her, and she's just wonderful. But it's true that we laugh a lot. We do a lot of laughing. And as they say, you know, in Yiddish, lachen is gesund, doktorim eisen lachen. Laughter is good. Doctors say to laugh. A lot of doctors advise to laugh. What attracted you to one another? What dispositional character traits drew you well, to one well, another? As far as her, how I attracted to her, it's my looks, definitely. Hmm. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. What should I say? Giselle is a wonderful person. She's a good human being. She's, and she looks good. And she's attractive. And... She is a wonderful, wonderful human being. We have we have sometimes fights, but they always end up in laughter. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you are working on next at your current project? Where has your time gone since completing this book? I started a new project called Anecdotes, the working title, Anecdotes, and it's incidents, events that happened during my practice as a lawyer and as a teacher and as a human being. And 
They're just anecdotes, true, true events. As we end our conversation today, I'd like to close by letting you know how grateful I am for your time, your generosity, your thoughtfulness, your eloquence, your erudition, your attention, and your time. Uh, it was my hallowed honor to have this privilege to learn from you and listen to you. I'm blessed by how much I grew from your book, and I cannot thank you enough for putting your experiences and your memories into writing for the benefit of people who you may never meet, but who will be forever indebted to you for what you've lived through and what you've taught us. Oh, well, thank you very much. Those were very kind words. Thank you. Thank you. Nice meeting you, and thank you for the interview. It was my hallowed honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. As, as we end today, I am signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalet, your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I have had the heartfelt privilege of engaging in a dialogue and conversation with Pinchas Eliyahu Blit. We have been discussing his memoir entitled A Promise of Sweet Tea, published in Toronto by the Azrieli Foundation Holocaust Survivor Memoirs Program, 2021. Thank you. Okay.